My lesson will be taken from 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we have a series of three verses, and that's going to be our outline. 2 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> Starting in verse 11, the Apostle Paul wrote this to Timothy. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Word faithful, the Greek word pistis, just means trustworthy. What Paul means is, this is a trustworthy saying. You can take it to the bank. You can build your life on it. It is the fourth and final faithful saying of these letters to Timothy. There were three in 1 Timothy. Some Paul think Paul may be quoting a hymn of the first century brethren, and that may well be. But as you saw, it consists of four conditional clauses. If one thing is true, then another is true. The first two concern faithful living, the latter two faithless living. Let's begin with the first. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we die, past tense, is there anybody in the room who has died with Christ? Should be a lot of hands in the room. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him by baptism into death. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Our old man was crucified with Him. Now the Him is Jesus, we know that for sure, because in Romans 6, 8, Paul said, If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. At baptism, every one of us in this room who has been baptized into Christ were united together in the likeness of Jesus' death. But more than that, we died to sin. Now, what's it mean to die to sin? And furthermore, it says we died to sin along with Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 10 speaks of the death that he died, that he died to sin once for all. How did Jesus die to sin? He never sinned. The Bible is explicit about this. He was at all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The Hebrew writer says that. Peter says that. And yet here it says that Jesus died to sin. How did he do that? The death that he died, he died to sin. When Jesus died, he forever passed beyond the reach of sin. It's consequences, because Jesus, just like us, he was a descendant of Adam, physically speaking, and therefore he inherited the consequences of Adam's sin, physically speaking. He was subject to death, and he did die a physical death, but once he died, he was never going to die again. And he raised from the dead, firstborn from the dead, never to die again. When he died, he passed beyond the reaches of physical death, which was a consequence of sin, and he passed beyond being tempted by sin. Bottom line, Jesus' life after his death was different than his life before his death. And the same should be true for us. Our old man was crucified with him that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Romans 6, 7, he who has died has been freed from sin. Prior to our baptism, we either did not try to cease from sin or we found that we did not have the power to do so. 
But if we are functioning faithfully in Christ this evening, we have died to sin, we are dead to sin, and the dead don't respond. Being dead to sin does not mean you will be practiced perfect obedience, but it does mean you will practice obedience. 1 John 3, 7 speaks to this. You will practice righteousness. This will be your habit. This will be the norm in your life. And as the years go by, there will be an increasing degree of obedience showing the maturity that you have in Christ. Paul says, if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. Do you have eternal life right now? I heard a no. I see some yeses. Both are true. But 1 John 5, verse 13, John did say these things I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you what? Have eternal life. We know that we have passed from death to life. 1 John 3, 14. He who has the Son has life. 1 John 5, 12. In a sense, you already have the very beginnings of spiritual eternal life. You are never going to spiritually die as long as you hold fast to him. But of course, Paul speaks to more than this. If we died with him, past tense, we shall live with him, future tense. You live in him right now, but the day will come that you will live with him. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. Simple promise, foundational truth. Verse 12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Paul has quite a bit to say about enduring in 2 Timothy. Timothy was up against some false teachers. The Roman environment for Christianity was getting more hostile. And repeatedly in this chapter, Paul speaks to this. Endure. Endure as a good soldier, Timothy, in verse 3. I'm enduring for the elect's sake, verse 10. And I believe he'll hit on it again before the chapter's over. We have endured very little in this country in comparison to those who've gone before us. I have no idea what the future holds. I'm not a conspiracy theorist when I say that there are people in places of influence in our nation right now who, if they could, at the very least, would put us in prison and shut us up. That's what they want, and if they get the power, that's what they're going to do. I don't know how long that will take. Maybe we'll have a reset. I hope so, but we'll just have to wait and see. But we've got to be willing to endure. And there are things we endure even now if we're serving him. There are mild persecutions. There are trials that come. There is mockery. You know, the Hebrew writer lists mockery right in there with all those horrible things. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true. If we endure, he says, we shall also reign with him. What does that mean? Well, there is a sense in which one reigns on this earth in Christ. They are serving the Lord. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27? I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. I rule over it with the help of God. Under the law, Romans 7 speaks to this, how that there was just this law of the mind, this will perhaps against the law of the sin which was in the flesh. It was my will versus the flesh, Paul said, and my flesh won out far more than I, my will wanted. But in the spirit, 
Romans 8 says there is the blessing of the Holy Spirit offering additional power that you be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. There's victory that you can have over sin in Christ that were you living under the law, you could never have. And you never could have had it before you became a Christian. So that may be included in what Paul's saying, but he certainly seems to be speaking to much, much more. He says we will reign with him. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, Jesus tells the parable of the talents. Very famous parable. And you can quote it for me. Here comes the servant who's managed the money well. He says, here, master, here's your money. It's earned more. And what does the master say? Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you what? Ruler. This is how Jesus describes the reward of the eternal inheritance. I will make you ruler over many things. You're a ruler over some things right now. Your body, your responsibilities, they are in your power. And if you manage those well and you're faithful in a few things, God, the Lord is going to make you faithful, make you ruler over many things. In Luke chapter 19, when Jesus tells the parable of the pounds or the parable of the minas in verse 17, well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority. Have authority over ten cities. This again is how the Son of God describes heaven. You're going to have authority over cities. Now, I don't want to carry that further than the Lord intended and because it hasn't been realized yet. We don't really know how far he intended it, but he doesn't speak things accidentally. He doesn't say things arbitrarily. Heaven is a place, says the Lord, in which in some sense, this description is appropriate. Have authority over ten cities. And the two verses later in Luke chapter 19, verse 19, or verse 9, pardon me, he says, be over, be over, Five cities. Well, that's interesting. Not everybody's over the same amount of cities. All the faithful are going to receive heaven. But the Bible does seem to indicate that not everyone's experience in heaven will be the same. Everyone in Christ in this room is saved. And yet, is everyone's responsibility level the same? We have people who are have, have families they're responsible for. Some do not. Some are officers in the church. Some are not. The experiences, the degrees of responsibility, the varieties of responsibility are different, even though you are equally saved. And in heaven, you will equally receive heaven. Everybody's going to get there who's in Christ. But Jesus seems to say the experience will not be the same. And in Daniel twelve three, which we heard just a moment ago, those who are wise shall shine like this. Let me just read it to you. It's quoted. Speaking of the resurrection, Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There appears there's going to be variety in responsibility and perhaps variety in that body, just like there's variety in these bodies. But there will be authority put into the hands of the Lord's people, it appears, and with that responsibility. Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says to the third church of Thyatira, he who overcomes and keeps my words until the end, keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. 
It just keeps getting more interesting, but I don't get any much more information beyond that. Be ruler over ten cities. Be over five cities. If you're faithful to me, I'm going to give you power over the nations. Well, who lives in cities? People. What are the nations? People. As parents, you have responsibility over people. As officers in the church, if you're an elder, if you're an evangelist, you have responsibility over people. It would appear that perhaps we are being told that in this reigning in glory, there will be responsibility. And that responsibility may include some having responsibility over others. And that would fit, wouldn't it? I, look, I don't know for sure, but wouldn't that fit? In the Among the angels, what is there? There's an archangel. There are princes, says Daniel, and then there are chief princes. There's a hierarchy among the angels. There's hierarchy in the family. There's hierarchy in the church. This would be completely in keeping with God's nature and habits for there to be hierarchy among the righteous. Whatever the case, the promise is, if we endure, we shall reign in some way. Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. That's authority. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, the second half, Paul says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 33, whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to deny? It doesn't mean to deny that he exists. Peter denied him. Peter didn't deny. He didn't say, well, there's no Jesus. He didn't say, Jesus isn't the Son of God. What did he do? He denied that he had any connection with him. This is what this word means in the Greek. To renounce association with. That's the idea. To repudiate. To disown. If I want Jesus to acknowledge that I am his, I must acknowledge that I am his. I must acknowledge it. In word and in deed. Jesus asked Peter three times. After after Peter denied him three times, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? If I love the Lord, I will acknowledge him. I will acknowledge my association with him, no matter the cost. Pliny the Younger was a second century Roman administrator. He governed over the province of Bithynia, which was in modern Turkey. He is best known for these ten books that we have of his correspondence. And about 112 A.D., this is in his tenth book, Pliny, who was governing over Bithynia, wrote to the Roman Emperor Trajan. And he said, Emperor, this is what's going on. The pagan temples are nearly deserted. The pagan festivals have greatly diminished. Sacrificial animals for the pagan temples have few buyers. What's going on? Christianity had taken Bithynia by storm. And this is a state issue. Because, of course, in that world... Everyone accepted religion, whether it was the right religion or not. And to be a part of the Roman Empire was to believe in the Roman gods. And now you've got this growing subset of people, these subversive people, who are encouraging people and drawing people to follow a religion that does not go along with the state. This is subversion. He writes Trajan and he says, here's what I'm doing. I'm rounding these people up. And I'm interrogating them. 
And if they are non-Roman citizens and they won't curse Christ, I have them executed. If they are Roman citizens, well, I handle that differently. I think he may have been sending them on to Rome for Rome to deal with. And he wanted to know if Trajan was okay with this way of handling it. But in the course of the letter, he writes to Trajan and he says, I would make them curse Christ, which a genuine Christian cannot be induced to do. Paul was calling Timothy to be a genuine Christian. And this passage is calling you and me to be genuine Christians. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? If this business about gender and oppression continues to I mean, it just seems it's everywhere, isn't it? It is literally everywhere. I don't I don't know that if this can be uprooted. I don't even know if this can be contained. I mean, it's going to take an act of God, I think, to contain it. If that gains more and more power and so forth. And by the way, it's already in the textbooks. In the, in the, one of the leading textbooks for college educators right now. I didn't bring the quote. Maybe I should have. It lists oppressors. And guess who's in the list? Christians. We are oppressors. These people mean business. And if you will not go along with the ideology, if you will not yield, I know it's already happening in some places. It's going to cost you your job. It may cost you other things. There's a sister in the Lord who I know has been, is, is going into the educational, uh, and going into that work, she's already made the decision. If they insist, if they tell me I have to lie and say a pronoun that is wrong, and I would be, I'm going to be complicit in the lie, I will give up my job. That's the sort of thing. That's the beginnings of the sort of thing that Paul's speaking to. But if we do not deny him, he won't deny us. If we do, he will. Verse 13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Romans 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, What if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. Same sort of thought is being addressed here. When Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He's not saying, look, if we stop serving the Lord, he'll still save us. I've heard that entertained. If we are faithless, if we choose not to keep our promise to serve him, and what was our baptism but a promise? I will serve you. If we, if we do not keep our promise to serve him, if we choose to serve ourselves rather than him, he remains faithful. What's that mean? It means he will keep his promises. He is still going to return. He is still going to save the righteous. He's still going to condemn the wicked. Everything he said remains true and where it requires action on his part, he's going to make good on it. The Lord is not slack concerning any of his promises. We might break ours. He's not going to break his. So my faithful, my faithlessness will not have any impact on him. 
do what you will. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to obey him. But if you won't, he's still going to follow through on what he said. He cannot deny himself. That's how the 13th verse closes. What's that mean? He cannot speak or act contrary to who he is. And who is Jesus? Well, he's Jesus. Yes. But in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And what does the Bible tell us of God? God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. For him not to follow through on his promise would be to deny himself, and he's not going to do that. Now, having finished with this faithful saying, Paul has something else to say in verse 14, and I've been asked to come on, come a comment on that, so if you've got your Bible open, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit. To the ruin of the hearers. There's a lot of reminding and remembering that goes on in 2 Timothy. If you go to the first chapter, verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul talks about remembering. I remember you in my prayers. Timothy, I remember the last time I saw you when you were in tears. I remember your mother and your grandmother. He calls Timothy to remember things at times, and now he's calling Timothy to remind the brethren of some things. Remind them of these things. What things? The things he just said. Now, that might go all the way back to verse 8, because there is a there is a flow there. He begins to talk about Jesus specifically in verse 8, and that could carry on all the way to verse 13. But either it's 11 through 13 or 8 through 13 that I think are these things he's talking about. Remind them of these things. Now, I have been told by several that I ain't seen nothing yet, and I'm sure they're right. I know that's right. But I, I find myself now walking into rooms and I'm like, why did I come here? It's happening repeatedly. What's that name? What's that name? I'm, I'm not remembering like I used to. It, it's, it's quite frustrating. It's it, it troublesome, frankly. I, I kind of obsess over it. So I don't, I'm not kidding when I say, if you've got any words of encouragement or words of prayer, I would appreciate it. It's, it's not a pleasant thing, and I've been fully informed it's not going to get any better. We forget. Well, I'm never going to forget that I need to serve the Lord. I need to endure with him if I want to reign with him. Right. There's different kinds of forgetting, aren't there? There's completely forgetting so that you don't even know it anymore. And then there's the forgetting in the sense that you're not mindful. And that's the idea. Remind them, Timothy, so that they are mindful of these profound and important truths that I just rehearsed. Charge them, he says, before the Lord. The word charge there is a very powerful word. It is defined this way by the Greek lexicon. To exhort with authority in matters of extraordinary importance. Frequently with reference to higher powers and or suggestion of peril. Solemnly urge, solemnly charge, says the New American Standard. Timothy, charge them, solemnly charge them before the Lord. In his presence, with him as witness. But I want you to notice, when you look at Paul's writings to Timothy, Paul himself uses this word. It's word for charge. And the two times that he does it of himself, Notice what he does. 1 Timothy 5.21. 1 Timothy 5.21. I charge you. Same Greek word. This solemn word. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the elect angels, when he solemnly urges them, solemnly uh, charges them to do this thing, he calls heaven his witness. He does it again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy charged them before the Lord. Paul may have meant, do as I have done, literally bring the Lord into the statement, brethren, I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus and the Father are watching. The Lord is watching. He is in agreement with what I'm saying. He will be watching to see if you take it to heart. You will be held accountable for this. This is serious stuff. It's all serious, but this is really serious. Charge them before the Lord, what? Not to strive about words. I was expecting something bigger than that. Strive about words. That whole phrase, strive about word, to strive about words, it's from one Greek word. And all the lexicons agree as to what that word means. Let me read to you some of what they say. Here's what Strong says. To be disputatious on trifles. Robert Mounts, the man who served as, I think, the chair for the New Testament committee who translated the ESV, he says this. To contend about words, by implication, to dispute about trivial things. And then the premier Greek lexicon of our time. To dispute about words, split hairs. Now, words mean things. I learned that from my father-in-law, and I've quoted it a bazillion times because I like it. And it's true. Words mean things. It's totally different to jump over the creek than it is to jump in the creek. One word completely changed the meaning of that sentence. And yet, you can make too much of words. And I've done it probably as much as most. Because I get hooked on words. Oh, what's this mean now? What's the nuance of this word? Before you know it, I'm drowning. I can't make heads or tails. And then I call Rick. Can you help me out? <laughs> but we're talking about more than paying attention to words. What did he say? Charge them not to strive. What's strive mean? That's an old-fashioned word. What's it mean? Quarrel. Quarrel. Wrangle. Argue. Later on in this chapter, verse 24, Paul said a servant of the Lord must not strive. Arguing is not right. I like to argue. Yeah, we're laughing because we can all kind of relate. Some of you are like, tell me something I didn't know, John. I can kind of tell. But there's a difference between contending and discussing and arguing. What's the difference? What's the difference? When does it go from a disagreement and a discussion to an argument? Okay, right. So I'm, I'm no longer listening to reason. And why am I no longer listening to reason? Because I want to win. It's not about the truth. It's about me. Are you suggesting that someone who would strive about words is inherently self-absorbed? Maybe not in all cases, but you know what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 about this sort of thing? 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and 
arguments over words. People who like to make a big deal about little things and create disputes and controversy in the kingdom on the congregational level, on the bigger level, you know who their priority is? Them. And some of us, unfortunately, have been witness to this in flesh and blood. Those kinds of results are exactly what Paul speaks to in 1 Timothy 6.4. When there are arguments over words of this variety, what comes from it? Envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds. What did Jesus say? He prayed to the Father in the last prayer. His disciples heard him pray before he went to the cross. Five times in John 17, what did he pray for? That they would be one. But a person of this variety who wants to make much ado about nothing, who wants to have the profound insight and insist that other people follow them and get on board. You know, that's what Paul said about these false teachers in Galatia. They want you to be zealous for them. They want a following. It doesn't bring about unity, just the opposite. Paul said here at the end of verse 14, this sort of behavior is not only to no no profit, but it's to the ruin of the hearers. And here's the word for ruin. Apostrophe. It would be a catastrophe. It would have been catastrophic for the brethren, for Timothy to permit profitless, pointless arguing of this variety for the sake of people's souls that needed to be, a stop needed to be put to it. And should any of us ever find ourselves in that kind of circumstance, we need to do what we can to put a stop to it. What did Paul say? Charge them solemnly about this. But what was the first thing in verse 14? Remind them of these things. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Ron Van Egdom, back in 1994, stood before the congregation of Oliver for their week meeting, and every morning he held up a big sign. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And if we, and if people will focus on the most important things, the weightier matters, these matters of the gospel, these life and death matters, they will not have time or inclination to get absorbed in this kind of destructive nonsense. That's the end of my lesson. We extend the gospel invitation. If you want to live with him, if you want to reign with him, then he invites you this evening to come die with him. Let's stand and sing.